Let's pray together. Father, it's a good place you've called us to be this morning. You have shed your grace on us. You have worked in our lives in spiritual ways, Lord, by bringing us to faith in your Son, Jesus, and by securing for us a place in eternity with you. You also, dear God, have worked in our life on a daily basis. Whether it's a time of joy and happiness or a time of challenge, or sadness. You have always been there. You have been the one who's given us peace. You're the one who's seen us through times of chaos. You're the one, dear God, who gives a foundation for us to base our whole existence on. You're a God of love and a God of mercy. And a God who expects great things from us. For we are indwelt by your spirit. And the potential for us to walk with you and talk with you is with us every day of our life. Father, on behalf of all of us, I acknowledge that there have been times in the past week since we worshiped last that we have not walked with you and we've not talked with you. Times, dear God, when our attention and even the desires of our heart and our passions may have been someplace beside focused on you. I pray, dear God, that you wouldn't just forgive us in a corporate way, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us identify those times and help us individually call out and ask for forgiveness and for us to turn from whatever that sin was and to do it no more. I thank you for the forgiveness that we know through the shed blood of Christ. While we may have a hard time forgetting what other people have done, it's been blotted out from your mind. And you're not going to hold those things against us And the gates of heaven are wide open awaiting us, a people who are forgiven through the atoning death of Jesus. How blessed we are to have a God who loves us and who provides for us here and eternally. Father, I wonder what you would have us do this next week. We live in communities and we live in a state and in a country and in a world that's in terrible tension. We have people, Lord, doing what they think is right without consulting you and people who are operating without the blessing of your Holy Spirit. And the decisions they make and the direction they go and the way they use their resources affects many others. Father, there's only one solution to what's going on, and that is that there be revival in our land. That we might get excited about our faith and might tell our neighbors and others, and they in turn might tell others, and then you, by your grace, 
would call people to yourself. What a wonderful day that would be, Lord. You do that in part now, but we're asking for something even more. That there might be a movement in our country and in other countries around the world. Please, God, use us. Help us to be willing to stand up and to speak out. Let other people notice that we are different. Let them notice the love and the grace that's a part of our life. I pray, dear God, for our president and for all those in Washington. And I pray that you would continue to lead them and use them. And I pray, dear God, that you would bring them to faith. I pray the same thing, Lord, for people who are in influential positions in the business world and other places in our community. We have so many teachers who have our children entrusted to them. I pray for them, Lord, and ask your blessing on those teachers. We have so many people in the military and in ways that they have never expected. They are being challenged today, not just militarily. We ask your blessing on our military, on our police forces, on the nurses who serve you, and all the others, dear God, in the helping professions. It is a wonderful country you've given us and a wonderful opportunity. But so many folks don't know you, Lord, and that's crippling us as a country. We pray for your help. We thank you for our church, Lord. We thank you for the love that's in this place. We thank you for those who teach your word, and we thank you for those who sing and use other gifts. We thank you for the reputation we have and the reputation that we're building for the future as a church that is faithful and a church that loves. And I pray, dear God, you would continue to bless us and bring us to the very point that you want us to be. Help us, O oh Lord, to offer ourselves and to want to be used by you. Thank you, Father, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Our study this morning is coming from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're going to look at the first verse, our first chapter. We're going to start with the 27th verse this morning. We're going to study verses 27 through 30. I encourage you to keep your Bible open in your lap and refer back to the passage as I move us through it so you can see why I say the things I say. Philippians, the first chapter, beginning with the 27th verse. Once you've found your place, please look up so I'll know you're ready to move on. In all these years, I've tried to think of another way to say that. Please look up when you've found your place and I'll know you're ready to move on. Let's ask the Lord for some help. Father, quite seriously, we come to you. We're your children and you've given us a gift that no other animal has. We have the gift of reason. We can read and we can comprehend and we can remember 
and we can recall. But we ask, dear God, that you would quicken all of those abilities, that we might be able to hear you speak to us this morning, and that we might see how it fits into our individual lives and how we will benefit and be a blessing to others. So please, Father, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you go outside of the city of Atlanta, just a little bit outside of the Beltway to the east, there's a mountain that most of us are familiar with. Its name is Stone Mountain. I've grown up knowing about Stone Mountain like lots of you. I learned some things about Stone Mountain that are interesting. 1916, a family by the name of Plain, P-L-A-N-E, owned that mountain and some adjacent land. And they gave the northern face of that mountain to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. There were some stipulations. One stipulation was that a memorial would have to be engraved on the side of that mountain that memorialized the Civil War veterans. Secondly, those who donated it, the Plain family, said that something would have to be completed within 12 years. I have no idea how they came up with the number 12, but that's the number they put on it. Well, no sooner had they given that land, the face of that mountain, to that organization, the First World War started. So they started eroding the 12 years very quickly because they couldn't get started. And then they had to raise funds, and that was a whole lot more difficult than they thought. So now it's 1923. 1923, they hire a sculptor, and he goes to work and starts blowing rock off the side of that mountain, and he starts creating the head of Robert E. Lee. Two years later, a dispute arises between the sculptor and those who were overseeing the project, and he quits, goes to Mount Rushmore, and does the sculptor work at Mount Rushmore. Another sculptor is hired and comes in, and I love this part of it. He looks up there and he says, no, we're not going to use any of that, and he blasts it all away, everything that had been done, and started over again. Two years later, he had Robert E. Lee's head up there. And they'd run out of money. So they stopped. And now the 12 years has run out. And the Payne family takes the face of that mountain back into their inventory. And for 36 years, nothing happens. Then they sell the property, the mountain and some surrounding property, to the state of Georgia. A couple of years later, the state of Georgia starts to work on it. And ultimately, in the early 1970s, the sculpturing is completed. I remember as a boy going to Stone Mountain when it wasn't a park. It was owned by the state. They had just bought it. And I remember going by a little guard station and looking just at Robert E. Lee's head. And some of you may have that same memory. Well, they finished it, and today it is the largest sculpturing work in the world. 
with 4 million people visiting that site each year. Bet you're wondering why I told you all that. I read that account and I thought, you know, there's a lot of similarity between that and the way we develop spiritually. God's given us something. He's given us our faith, our relationship with him through Jesus. He's given his Holy Spirit to us. He's equipped us. And a lot of us start out kind of stumbling along like they did in the first few years, and then we get serious about it for a while. But if we're not very careful, life kind of suffocates that enthusiasm. Things happen. We get distracted. And we go through periods of time when we're taking some steps backward instead of developing spiritually. And then we get a new start. Somebody has some new enthusiasm. We get on board. We start to grow spiritually. We start to feel good about what's going on in our life spiritually. And then something else happens. We wake up one day and we look back and we have just been idle spiritually probably can't even remember what caused it, but it's happened. And then, by God's grace, we're going to become a finished product because God is going to finish it. And we're going to get to know him intimately. And we're going to get to spend eternity in his presence. Any of you identify with that? Too many times in my life I've run at it and stopped and run at it. and I think a lot of us do that. When you read our passage from today, what Paul is doing is he's saying to a church just like ours in Philippi, he's saying, I want you to develop in the Lord. I want you to get serious about your faith. I want you to grow up and let the Lord have his way with you. And he has an interesting way of saying it. At first, he puts out a challenge, and then he talks about a couple of things that are going to really surprise the Philippians, and maybe even some of us, that have a tendency to slow us down when instead they're intending to motivate us. Let me read the passage to you from Philippians, the first chapter, starting with the 27th verse. Listen as God speaks to us. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul starts in this part of his letter to the Philippians by saying, here's the challenge before you. I want you to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, he's got volumes of things on his mind when he says that to us, and he packages it just in one phrase. 
What he's saying is, you have experienced the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. The good news that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And he not only died for you, but that God, out of his grace and his mercy, has called you to be his. And in doing so, he has brought you into a relationship with Jesus, that Jesus might be your Savior and become the Lord of your life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That God is mightily at work in our life, and instead of keeping account of all of the evils and shortcomings in our life, instead of being focused just on punishing us and helping us experience the consequence of those sins, instead he has said, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to work in your life. And in some cases, in spite of you, I'm going to finish this work that I'm starting. The Philippians heard that. What they heard was Paul saying, why don't you take a look at the way you live in your life? Is it worthy of what you've experienced? You and I don't earn our salvation, and we all know that. But there's a high expectation that once we have received that free gift of salvation, and once we are now secure in our salvation, that God has a purpose for our life. And God wants us to live a life that is exemplary of someone who has been blessed by him. He wants us to be a blessing to somebody else because we have been blessed. He does not want us to take that blessing and put it aside and say, that's mine and nothing is expected of me. Scripture teaches before the foundation of the world, before he called any of us, he planned what he wants us to do with our life for him. Ephesians 2.10. So you see there's this expectation that we're going to live up in a worthy manner to the wonderful thing we've experienced. He says to us, I want you to stand firm. And he says, I want you to stand firm in the spirit. And I want you to be of one mind, a second thing, And I want you to strive together for the gospel. I tried to think of an example of standing firm and also of being of one mind and striving together. And I looked around at God's creation and I became aware that there's a tree that's an example of the first and there's a tree that's an example of the second. First tree I'd never heard of. It's called the Beobob. Where that came from, I have no idea. It's a tree that is common to South Africa and to the southeastern part of the world. The Beobob tree, in many instances, grows to be 100 feet tall. What's unique about it is it can survive in very arid, even desert-like conditions. What's also unique about it is its bark is fireproof, almost impenetrable. What else is so unique is that it's not a very pretty tree. It grows to 30 feet in diameter, a third of its height. And the trunk goes into the ground at about the same diameter. So it draws its nourishment from this huge 
root system that not only gives it strength but gives it nourishment. So when I hear about standing firm in the Spirit, what God is saying is, I want my children who have been blessed by me and who have experienced my grace, I want them to plant their feet and I want them to get roots down into me, into my word and communication through prayer and I want you to get your nourishment from me. Stop looking in the world you're in and let me be the one who nourishes you. And when I do that, you'll stand firm throughout this life. Isn't that an interesting challenge? And then he goes on to say, and I want you to work together. I want you to be one of one mind, and I want you to work together striving to share the gospel with other people. And he says, when you do that, you're going to be worthy of the good news that you've already experienced. You know what tree I thought about when I thought about the being of one mind and sharing together and striving with the gospel? Those beautiful redwoods in California, tallest tree on earth, grow to 350 feet. You know how high that is? That's a long way. And they have no taproot. You would think they'd have a taproot a mile deep. They don't. Instead, what they have are a multitude of roots that go out 20 and 30 and 40 feet all around the base of that tree, and they interweave with the other trees. And through that massive root system that the trees in the forest of a redwood forest create, they get strength from each other. And they can withstand the winds off the Pacific Ocean. And if you've ever been to California or Washington or Oregon, you know about those winds. Well, it's not the taproot. It's the intermingling of the roots. And Paul says, I want you to intermingle. I want you to be of one mind. And I want you to find strength from each other. And I want you to work together, not individually, to share Jesus Christ with other people. Folks, if you ever start feeling like you're estranged from other people in the church, you do something about it. If you ever get to where you're not of one mind, say something to somebody. Let somebody help you. Because the whole intention is once we're folded into the family of God, we are to be of one mind. We are to think in terms of scripture about how God wants us to live our lives. And when we go somewhere else individually or do something else, we're not doing what God wants. He wants us to be the church. He wants us to love each other. He wants us to forgive each other. And he wants us to work together in concert to do the things that he wants. Now, when you stand firm and when you're of one mind, you're starting to realize what he said when he said, I want you to live a life worthy of what I've done for you. He has shown us grace. He said, now, here's what I want you to do. And he offers us two things. It seems to me, as I sat in my study and worked on my sermon, we could stop right there and say, now, Lord, is that where I am as an individual? Have I got my roots in you, and am I 
working with others in concert to accomplish what you've asked me to accomplish? And that's the question that you and I need to deal with. He says that to the Philippians, and the Philippians were one of his more prosperous churches. If you look back at the churches he started, there's a pretty good church. There's a lot of love, and and most of us love to read this letter because you can sense that. There was a power in that church, and when he left that church, that church was up and running. They were getting their roots in the Lord, and they were working together. And still he says that to them because there's a constant temptation for us not to do either one of those things. And he's saying, I love you. That's what I want you to do. If you look on down to the 28th verse, he starts talking about those who are our opponents. And don't you imagine somebody who's reading this letter says, what do you mean, opponents? I thought becoming a Christian was just to be blessed by God and to be happy all the rest of the days of my life. Have you learned that's not true? That's not how it is. We have a life. Our life is tainted by sin. The world we live in is tainted by sin. There are all kinds of challenges, all kinds of hardships, all kinds of things that would do us in, and sometimes it's people who would try to do us in. God hasn't said to us, I'm going to come fix all of that in your life. What he has said to us is, I'm going to come and be with you in those situations. And I'm going to see you through those. And I'm going to use those situations to my own end. I'm going to bless you. The opponents in Philippi? There were a few Jews there. Apparently there weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue. But don't you think they opposed Paul and his New Testament church? because they didn't believe the Messiah had yet come. So they would have looked at Paul as a heretic, and they would have put pressure on Paul and on the church in Philippi. How about the Gentiles in that city? The people in the church were Gentiles who were atheists, who had accepted Christ, and now they had stepped out of mainstream Philippian life and were living a very different life. And don't you imagine their neighbors and business associates and people they met were their opponents? You know, if a person is doing something wrong, have you ever noticed they try to get other people to do it also? Somehow that's a self-justification. If I can get you to do it, then I don't have to deal with the fact what I'm doing is wrong. It must be okay if I can get Bob to do it with me or if I can get Kent to do it with me. That's not true, is it? But that's how people think. Well, in this case, these Christians, because they were followers of Jesus, stepped out of the mainstream. And they would not conform and go back in. And now they have opponents. People who not only resist them, but without realizing it, they resist God. When you see evil, When you see someone doing something that is counterproductive to what you know is the will of God, what you are witnessing, and Paul says it, is a person who's in a destructive lifestyle. Because it's not just the church, it's God himself that they are rebelling against. And when you look around at the culture you and I live in, 
you can see a lot of people and a lot of organizations in the process of self-destruction. And we should never be happy about that. That ought to be a motivation for us to share Jesus with them and to try to encourage them. What that does is it flags for us the very people we need to be talking to. He says to us also in that same verse, it's also self-reflective. When we can see that destructive work going on, it means that God has saved us. It means God has done a work in us, and we're new people. And now we can see with discernment what's going on, that which we would not otherwise have seen. And that says that by God's grace, we have become followers of Jesus Christ. And we really are Christians. Isn't that a neat message? I'll bet the people in Philippi were saying, well, I don't know about this opponent stuff. And then he turns around and he says to them in the 29th and 30th verses, I got something else for you. It's just not opponents you're going to have to deal with. There's some suffering. He says it this way, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And can't you hear some of the folks in the church saying, Do what? You mean this isn't just going to be a cakewalk now that we're part of the family of God? And he's saying, no, it's not. And then I'm sure he encourages them to think back about his experience with them. He came into their city. He went into their marketplace. There was a slave girl who was demonized. She kept pestering him. Finally, he cast the demon out of her. She was an employee of some men who used her to prophesy, a fortune teller. When the demon was removed from her, she no longer could serve that purpose. And those who owned her went to the magistrate who was quite willing to work with them. And they took Paul and his associates into the square stripped their shirts off, and beat them with rods. Think about that. Then they took them and threw them without any medical care into a prison. And because the magistrate told the guards at the prison that those people had better not get out of jail, he put them into the inter-prison, meaning there were no windows. And he shackle them, their feet, to the ground in an environment that not one of us would want to walk through, let alone have to be on the ground and incapable of moving. By the way, you know what they did when they got in that prison? They started singing praise hymns to God. Walk through that a little bit. Isn't that something? They weren't alone, and they knew they weren't alone. Well, what Paul is saying to the church, you know my history, you know what happened to us when we were with you. Because we believed, it found expression in our life, and because it found expression in our life, we suffered. Have you ever suffered for the Lord? 
Many of us have suffered because we've done things we shouldn't have. Many of us have suffered because we live in a fallen world and suffering's a part of that. Have you ever suffered for the Lord? Now let me raise the flag real quick. I'm not talking about being self-righteous and trying to get attention by suffering. I'm talking about, and this is what Paul's talking about, you're so sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've so fallen in love with the God of mercy and the God of grace that you're being transformed day by day into the image of Christ. And as you go through that transformation, that is going to bring on suffering. Because our culture, our society, even some of the laws of our land, Do not embrace that change. Have you ever suffered for Christ's sake? There are people around the world right now in nine or ten different countries who are suffering because they are believers. Some of them are being mistreated. Some of them aren't being given a fair chance even to make a living. Some are being persecuted. Some are being physically hurt. Some are in prison. And many have and are dying because they are followers of Jesus Christ. Have you ever suffered for the Lord? I think what Paul's trying to say to the church he loves so very much He's trying to say, you know, God has shed his grace on you. And now you're a new person. You have a new foundation to live from. You have new priorities. You have a new way of life. Don't let work stop for 36 years. Progress. And as you do, there are going to be people who are opponents. And as you do, there's going to be suffering. But on the other side of all of that, God is going to see you through it. And God is going to take care of you. And God's going to work his purpose out in your life. And it will be a blessing to you and to other people. Can you all hear it? Pretty serious stuff, isn't it? What we're involved in is pretty serious stuff. That table is a reminder of how serious it is. It cost Jesus his life because he walked as God wanted him to walk. And he had opponents and he suffered and he died and he was raised from the dead and he's alive. And you and I who are adopted into that family are going to have opponents. We're going to suffer. We're going to die. We're going to be raised from the dead as adopted children. And we're going to live forever with a God who loves us. Got it? As we come to the table this morning, rethink what Paul is saying to the folks in the city of Philippi.
Let's pray together. Father, once a month we come around this table and we're reminded, dear God, of the grace that you've shown us. We're reminded, Lord, of the high price that you've paid. You gave your only son, something I doubt any of us would do. And you gave him at a time when we were yet sinners, a time when we weren't even looking for you or interested in you. And you've continued to show us that grace and that mercy. And Father, we come today around this table to give thanks for your persevering love. Father, I'd ask you to set these elements aside that we might share together and that you might use them in a spiritual way that the Holy Spirit might engraft us to Christ and that you might quicken our minds and our hearts. Use these elements, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest unto your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall surely find rest. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me, I shall never, shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know, folks, that's such a reassuring statement. When we stumble, when we do something that really displeases God, he says, I'm not going to take you and throw you away. You're mine. I love you. And I'm not going to cast you away. And you can feel him tighten his grip as he hugs us and says, I love you. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In light of the passage we just studied, he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. When you seek to live in a worthy manner, because God has loved you, he says, I'm going to fill you. I'm going to take care of you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us as we come to this table. I'd invite you, if you would like to open your hymn book, to turn to 583. And we're going to play through it one time, and then we're going to sing the first verse. Let's stand together.
In our new member class this morning, we were talking about the sacraments, and we were talking about the invitation and the fencing of the table. The invitation is this. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you believe in him, and if you're a member of his church, a Bible-believing church, and if you have not had this sacrament suspended, by your church as an act of discipline, then I want to invite you to come to this table. This table is not set just for our church or just by our denomination. This is the Lord's table, and you're invited to take part in it. There's a warning that we also looked at in Scripture this morning in Sunday school, and the warning is given by Paul to the church at Corinth, which had all kinds of spiritual dysfunctionality. And he said to that church, and he says to us, before you come to this table, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to take time to be honest with yourself. And if you have a sin in your life, and you know it's a sin, and you're not asking for forgiveness, and you're not dealing with that sin, then please don't come to this table. Let the elements pass you by. Because Scripture very clearly teaches that you will bring the judgment of God on yourself if you judge this table in an unworthy manner. But there's another statement. If you call out on the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done, whatever it may be. And I'm going to turn from that sin. Help me, Lord. Then I want you to know the table is set for you. And you're invited to take part. It is a table set for repentant sinners, not perfect people. So I encourage you to examine yourself. In the way of instruction, our elders will bring each of the elements to you. I encourage you to hold the element and we'll take it together as the family of God. And then they'll bring the second element to you. In my mind, I always go back to the upper room on Thursday night 
Jesus and his disciples, instead of leaving Jerusalem, by divine appointment, have stayed in the city. They've gone to a room in a very crowded city that God had set aside for them. And they're going to take the Passover together. And as they start to take the Passover, Jesus takes a loaf of bread and he says to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. You take and eat of it in remembrance of me. They had Passover together. At the end of the Passover, Jesus took the common cup and he passed it from one to another and he said, Take and drink of this. A new covenant has been poured out for you. It's been poured out in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I encourage you, as the elements are being passed, remember what God has done through his son for you. The giving of his body, the giving of his blood.
this is our Lord's body, which is for you. So take and eat of it. This is our Lord's body, which is for you. So take and eat of it in remembrance of him. Picture the people of Israel. <clears throat> They've crossed the sea. They're in a wilderness. They've grumbled and they've fussed and they've wanted to go back from whence they have come. They have nothing to eat. And God in his grace provides food for them, manna, on a daily basis for 40 years and takes care of his people. Jesus says to us in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He is God's gift to us. That we who would otherwise die might live. Amen. Take and eat of this in remembrance of him.
which is shed for you. So take and drink of it in remembrance of him. This is our Lord's blood, which is shed for you. Drink of it in remembrance of him. As a parent, you know how precious blood is. And if a child of yours starts to lose blood, don't you do everything you can to stop that bleeding and preserve that life? And yet God in his providence allowed his son Jesus to be nailed to a cross and allowed the very life to be taken from him because he came to atone for our sin and a loving God was going to complete what he began. As you take this and drink of it, remember what God has done for you. Let's pray together. Father, you use this sacrament as you use the sacrament of baptism. And as you use the preaching of your word to minister to us. You do that in a variety of different ways. But I pray, dear God, that as we leave this place today, not just the thought of what has happened here would linger, but there would be a most positive effect on our life. You have brought us closer to your Son and helped us to be even more aware of what you have done as an act of grace. Thank you, Father. Thank you in the precious name of your Son, Jesus our Savior. Amen. We're going to play through our hymn once again, 583, and then we'll sing the second verse together. Let's stand together.
in a manner worthy of the gospel. Go live your lives. God bless you and God keep you, my friends. And may you feel his presence and his power as you live out your life for him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.